Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm David McKechnie, standing in this week for Chris Dooley. Later, I'll speak to Rahul Bedi in New Delhi about the protests sweeping the country over a new citizenship law, which is deemed by critics to have an anti-Muslim bias, and is the latest in a series of contentious policy moves by Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist government. With sectarian tensions rising, is the clue that binds India's Hindu majority and its minorities coming unstuck. But first to the UK, where Parliament has returned following Boris Johnson's landslide electoral victory, and the Prime Minister has set down an early marker with the news that the Brexit legislation he will publish this week will prohibit him from extending the UK's transition period beyond the end of 2020. That means some sort of trade deal with the EU needs to be in place by then, which many see as unlikely, or a new kind of no-deal scenario looms. To discuss the implications of this, what kind of Johnson government we can expect, and where the Labour Party goes after its electoral disaster, I'm joined on the line by London editor Dennis Staunton. Dennis, uh, the news about the hard deadline on the transition period took many by surprise uh, and signalled a very assertive beginning by the new administration. It caused the pound to slide, but what has been the reception to it in at Westminster in general? Well, there's a certain amount of scepticism about it because, you know, he can uh, put into law uh, this prohibition for extending the deadline. And, uh, you know, if he wants to extend this transition, he's got to agree to do that by next summer, by July. And that has to be done. uh, It's a sort of a joint decision with the European Union and the UK. And so he's going to put into the withdrawal agreement bill that uh, his government is forbidding itself from doing this. And, uh, and of course, he's got the votes to put that into law. But of course, he also has the votes to change the law should he wish to do so. I mean, I don't think that it's his intention to do that. But I think that it, that what this does is that it signals two things. One is that it sends a signal to his supporters and to the public that this is a government that intends to get things done. It intends to get this thing done quickly. We're not going to have years and years of endless negotiations. We're going to get uh, a trade deal agreed quickly. Uh, the Government also appears to think that this is good tactically where the Europeans are concerned and that it'll make the Europeans understand that uh, there's going to be no messing around and that when he says that he wants a straightforward free trade agreement, that's what he's looking for. Uh, In fact, of course, the deadline is probably more in... um, Europe's interests than it is in Britain's because Europe is all the time in the world and it has, it's under no political pressure to complete the trade negotiations by the end of next year. It could go on as long as it likes, nobody cares. Whereas, of course, there is political pressure on him to do something quickly here. So I think it's sending a signal in that way. But I also think it probably actually reflects the reality of what he wants. He really does want to get uh, out of the single market, out of the customs union. And I think just to make clear to everybody, there was some kind of talk that, you know, now that he's got this big majority, that maybe he could kind of tack in towards the centre and go for a softer Brexit. He's not going to, I think, because he doesn't want a softer Brexit. Yeah, I guess it's fair to say that that the aggressive strategies he's used since coming uh, becoming prime minister has paid off handsomely. Um, and I suppose we might expect more of the same. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that certainly rhetorically it helps. But I also do think that as it happens, it kind of chimes with what he's looking for. I think there is a bit of a problem, though, in a couple of ways. The, the first is that if you go for 
a very, very uh, limited free trade agreement uh, with very few commitments made on Britain's part, for example, to uh, having a kind of what they call a level playing field of the same kind of rules about employment rights and environmental standards and state aid rules and competition policy. If you're not going to do, if they don't want to agree to that, then what it means is that there would be uh, a limited kind of uh, access for British goods to the European market. And more important to Britain is what uh, what everything means in terms of selling its services to the European Union because services are a much bigger part of the British economy than manufactured goods are. And since uh, Britain is going to stay out of the single market, there is no arrangement as of now. Uh, there's not going to be any arrangement for covering services. And so there will be issues, for example, like what's going to happen with data. Will Europe recognise uh, Britain's data protection standards? Will Britain continue to follow Follow GDPR, the European standard on data. And that matters to a huge extent for all kinds of services and manufactured goods and all kinds. So there are, there are quite complicated issues that have to be negotiated in a very short space of time. And what Downing Street said to us today was that there's going to be no extra buffer zone, no extra transition after the transition. So in other words, if the uh, Europeans and the British agree to some new arrangements in November of 2020, that all of the uh, structures and all the arrangements will have to be in place by January 2021, so within a few weeks. And this is a huge ask for business to suddenly, you know, to, uh, to be told that you're going to have to go for this entirely new set of arrangements. And what, they, uh, what I think Boris Johnson is signalling to business now is you get ready for uh, essentially what is a very hard Brexit. Get ready to uh, be out of the customs arrangements, out of the single market immediately at the end of 2020. Now, the withdrawal agreement bill will, will have its second reading on Friday. Are there any other changes flagged that we might see to it in any other areas like citizens' rights? Yes, or I, I think what we're expecting is that that they will drop uh, the uh, some compromises that they put in there. So, for example, they put in certain guarantees of maintaining uh, the same standards of employment rights and uh, environmental standards. What the government here is saying is that they're going to have their own uh, separate legislation which will guarantee uh, high standards in those areas. And what I think they're also going to do is that they had put in, again, as a sop to some moderates and some remainers, the idea that Parliament would have more uh, would have uh, something of a say in how these negotiations go. So, for example, the Parliament would be able to uh, veto any extension or indeed veto any decision not to extend the transition period and also the Parliament would kind of give a mandate for the negotiations to the government. And I think that's all going to go because he doesn't need Parliament, he's got it. Now, this morning, uh, Boris Johnson held his first cabinet meeting and, and, we, and we know that uh, after a couple of minor tweaks to his team yesterday, there'll be a substantial reshuffle in February. Do we know anything yet of what he's been saying to his new, new team or, or what it might look like? No, uh, what's going to happen is that uh, really uh, after, as they say, Brexit is done, once Britain leaves the uh, European Union at the end of January, 
Then uh, Dominic Cummings, who's his chief of staff, is going to lead this uh, entire sort of rethink and overhaul of Whitehall. So what you'll probably see is that some government departments will be abolished, some will be merged. And so the cabinet reshuffle, the proper one, will depend on really what decisions are made uh, where that's concerned. Now, people are talking about February because they're saying, you know, this is all going to happen after Brexit happens at the end of January. But I understand that it may not actually happen immediately in February, that it could actually uh, uh, take a bit longer. So it might be in March or even later than that. So I think they're not going to rush into this. But I think what you will see, so there are some uh, of these changes which will be kind of straightforward. So, for example, the Brexit Department will probably be abolished and folded into the Department of Trade, which would lead the trade negotiations. And there's some talk of uh, putting the International uh, Development uh, Department into the Foreign Office. And so there are various kind of things like that. But also, Dominic Cummings has a more ambitious agenda to change the way decisions are made in the civil service to make it easier to hire and fire senior civil servants. And he just thinks that basically that the way in which decisions are made in government in Britain is antiquated and not fit for purpose. So um, so we'll see what he comes up with there. Now, I see Boris Johnson spoke to his cabinet uh, this morning a little about how voters uh, had lent them their vote. Um, can we expect a big focus on, on those voters in the north and in traditional labour areas in, in in the coming months and in some of the early, early policy decisions. Yeah, I think so. And there are certain priorities that uh, voters in those constituencies in the north of England particularly have. And they're to do with things like uh, broadband, transport links, uh, you know, the the trains, uh, the train connections uh, in the south of England are actually pretty good. And getting from, say, London to Birmingham or Manchester is it's pretty fast, frequent services. The problem comes if you actually are in the north and say you want to get across from the northeast to the northwest, and then you're operating in these really very rackety, very slow and sparse trains. And it really drives people crazy. So the lack of connectivity up there is also something that is holding back economic uh, potential, you know, the potential for economic activity. And there's also uh, problems with, um, you know, with the, the issue of broadband coverage. And you know, so there are whole areas of that. There are also people are concerned about the uh, the high street. So the uh, the fact is that in a lot of the the towns, uh, you know, of England, so not the, so much the cities as the towns, you find that the high street has kind of died over the years. And this is to do with all kinds of um, economic changes that have affected everywhere, like the rise of online shopping and the fact and things like business rates. And so I think the government will be expected to do something to try to revitalize the high street because it's one of the ways in which people uh, who live in towns tend to assess the health of their community, that if there's nothing going on on the high street, they feel as if the town is dying. And so uh, so I think that you'll find things like that and a lot of sort of big infrastructure projects. And the problem with the big infrastructure projects is that they don't actually tend to come on stream for a few years. So I think what he's going to try to look for is some kind of uh, initiatives that actually will bear fruit pretty quickly so that people in the north will start to feel as if something really is changing for them. And, and will he be able to keep both, both that sort of new constituency happy and his own uh, traditional base or, or, or is that a, does that present a problem in itself? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, if you look elsewhere in Europe, you'll see that uh, there is a kind of a new breed of uh, conservatism. So if you look at, say, some of the, uh, you know, a party like the, the Polish Law and Justice Party, in uh, you know, which is a right-wing party, 
culturally on the right. Now, there are various things that uh, they don't have in common with uh, with Boris Johnson's uh, Conservative Party. So they're, for example, very illiberal on social issues, and that's not true of the Conservative Party here. But one of the things is that some of these parties, they, um, they, you know, they believe in a strong role for the state and for a role, uh, for, and, and that the state should have a, a big role in encouraging investment and targeting investment to particular parts of the country. And this is something which really, uh, you know, Thatcherite conservatism would, would find anathema. But actually, it's something which Boris Johnson's conservatism embraces. And then there are certain kinds of cultural things. So, for example, uh, if you look at, say, David Cameron's conservatism, it was essentially liberal. And so you had this whole uh, hug a, ho- a hoodie uh, campaign so that essentially, you know, that it was about, uh, you know, dealing with young offenders in a way that was compassionate and had an emphasis on rehabilitation rather than purely on punishment. I think you're going to see a big change from that. And so this is going to be a strict law and order government, plenty of police, tough sentencing. And that's the kind of thing which is popular among uh, working class voters like the um, the voters, like the people who voted uh, for Boris Johnson up in the north and in the Midlands this time. So I think you'll see a kind of a a new form of conservatism. But I think that most conservative voters in the south of England, uh, one of the reasons they voted for the conservatives is because they didn't want to have Jeremy Corbyn or uh, a Labour government. And I think that that incentive will continue to be the case. And I think also that he is going to take care of them in that although he probably isn't going to give them tax cuts to any great extent, he's also not going to penalise them. And uh, so uh, you, if you remember, Theresa May had this idea about how you take care of yourself in your old age that you might have to end up selling your house to, to fund it. And that was very unpopular among conservative voters. So she dropped it. You're not going to see anything like that from Boris Johnson. So I think he will manage to please both sides of his coalition. Uh, will the fact of the, of the, the sizable majority influence their approach and, and maybe make them more assertive? Um, I presume it will, it will obviously change the business in Parliament and, and things will run a bit smoother than what we're used to. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, for example, I mean, you're going to have the Queen's speech on Thursday, which sets out the legislative program of the government. And really, for the last, like, since 2010, in a way, uh, you know, when you haven't sort of really had a majority government, or at least a substantial majority in government, uh, you know, that uh, that all of these governments since then, uh, if they put something into this Queen's speech, you wouldn't be sure it was going to happen or not, because all you needed was a relatively small rebellion on the government benches, and the the measure would have to be dropped. Whatever he says he's going to do in his Queen's speech, he'll be able to do. There's really very little scope for a rebellion if you've got a majority of 80. And particularly given that the uh, the two main opposition parties in England, at least the uh, Labour and the Liberal Democrats, are both in a state of shock. And so, um, you know, so I think he's going to have a, pre- a pretty clear run in Parliament. And I would say that probably, uh, you know, given the, the political style he has brought to the thing so far, I think you're probably going to see quite a lot of activity within the first few months because uh, the government will want to make a first impression with the public that it is a government of action and that it is fulfilling its promises to, you know, the promises that got it elected. Now, just turning to the Labour Party, we've seen a bit of manoeuvring taking place for the leadership already. Um, can you talk us through that process that lies ahead? Um, it's, it seems bound to be uh, difficult and fraught. And, and have any names uh, emerged that, that, that look uh, likely, likely bets? 
Well, the uh, the, the the membership uh, of the Labour Party, uh, the half a million people who are members of the Labour Party, they choose the leader of the Labour Party. But to get on the ballot, you need two things. You need to go through two hoops. One is that you need to get a certain number of the support of a certain number of MPs. They don't actually have to really support you, but they have to sign your nomination paper. And so they'll need about 20, 21 uh, MPs uh, to get on, uh, to get through the first stage. And then they need either the support of a certain number of constituency Labour parties, the local parties, or affiliated organisations like trade unions. And so that's a further kind of winnowing out process. And so, uh, you know, and so, for example, the trade unions will tend to uh, to make their choice on ideological lines. Most of the big ones are uh, on the left. And then, uh, so, so then once you get through that, then th- there is a contest. And so the whole thing is going to start in January, the whole process. And the idea would be that it would be finished in March. Nobody's actually declared yet. Uh, what uh, we're expecting is like a number of people have given an indication either publicly or privately that they're going for it. And so uh, among the people we would expect to run would be um, a, a sort of a joint ticket of Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's the Shadow Business Secretary and a close ally of Jeremy Corbyn and particularly of John McDonnell. And her uh, friend and flatmate, who is the education, the shadow education secretary, Angela Rayner, who was expected to run in her own right. Apparently, the word now is that she'd actually run for the deputy leadership and the two of them would be on a kind of a joint ticket. Uh, Lisa Nandy, who is the uh, MP for Wigan and who has been among those who uh, have been calling for the party to reach out more to Labour voters who backed Brexit. And she uh, has been a big critic of the leadership and really of what has happened uh, in the last few days in terms of the uh, the loss of those seats in uh, in places like hers. But I mean, she held on to hers, but uh, her seat, but, but the losses uh, losses in that old industrial heartland. So she's likely to be a candidate. Uh, Keir Starmer, the shadow Brexit secretary. Uh, is expected to run. He would be a strong candidate, but uh, the critique of him would be, first of all, that uh, he is from North London, just as uh, Jeremy Corbyn is and as Ed Miliband was, and that maybe it's time for a change. And also that a lot of people in the Labour Party think it's time that they had a woman as leader because they've never had one and uh, the Conservatives have had two and other parties have had uh, female leaders as well. And so um, as the party that has really done more in terms of promoting women's rights in Britain, that it seems ironic and odd that they haven't. Anyway, so he's likely to run. And then um, others who have suggested they might run are Clive Lewis, who's a a left-ish member of the Labour Party who's uh, kind of had his ups and downs with Jeremy Corbyn and the leadership. And then Emily Thornbury, who's the Shadow Foreign Secretary, possibly she got into a bit of a spat where she was accused of saying insulting things about Leave voters and she's denied having said it. And so uh, so these are the kinds of names that, uh, that, that, that we're hearing about. But I think probably they'll all take their various soundings, see what level of support they're going to have and come back uh, in January and start the campaign. For now, it's a moment for recrimination and bitterness. And uh, this evening, the, the Labour Parliamentary Party uh, are meeting. Jeremy Corbyn is going to go and meet them. And I think he's going to have a pretty rough ride when he goes there. Finally, Dennis, uh, over many months we've been used to seeing pro and, and anti-Brexit protesters outside Parliament. 
Um, have they disappeared? Uh, and is there a sense of, of game over? Yeah, they've mostly disappeared. It's actually such a relief not uh, having to go through them all shouting at you in one direction or another. And so um, there was a little handful of pro-Brexit um, you know, protesters or demonstrators outside today. But I mean, the the big flag waving uh, stop Brexit people and the uh, you know their counterparts on the pro Brexit side, they've they've gone, and the Remain cause is gone. It's lost, and uh, Britain will be leaving the European Union at the end of January, and that's it. Dennis Staunton, thank you for joining us from London. Thanks. Now to India, where protests have spread after Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist government last week introduced a new citizenship bill, which means that all non-Muslim minorities in the three neighbouring Islamic states of Afghanistan, Bangladesh and Pakistan are entitled to Indian citizenship on the grounds of facing persecution. Critics of the bill say it is biased against the country's 200 million Muslims and is only the latest manifestation of Modi's Hindu-centric rule which received a huge popular endorsement with a crushing election victory last May. I'm joined on the line by journalist Rahul Bedi in New Delhi. Rahul, can you tell me a little bit about this new citizenship law and why it is so contentious? Uh, it's Now it's become law as of the last three days. And uh, it basically, as you said in your introduction, uh, permits non-Muslim minorities who India claims are facing persecution in countries like Afghanistan, Bangladesh and Pakistan from citizenship in India. But this has received widespread uh, condemnation because uh, Mr. Modi's uh, Hindu nationalist government is seen uh, as one that is trying to um, solidify the Hindu vote uh, to get uh, to secure re-election in, in various state elections as well as to solidify his own rule. Uh, so it's seen as a divisive move. Uh, and one that uh, is uh, manifesting itself in a lot of violence across the country. In fact, for example, yesterday there were about 28 uh, student campuses that went on the rampage. And even today the violence is continuing. That is kind of widespread around the country at this stage, is it? Uh, well, it's widespread, uh, particularly in the Northeast, which is a very, very sensitive and uh, strategically crucial area as far as India is concerned, because China has been meddling around there for the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, and it borders Bangladesh and it borders Myanmar. So a lot of uh, Hindus uh, who, are, who uh, are residents of Bangladesh uh, have been swarming uh, states like Assam and a neighboring state called Tripura. And uh, they have upset, in fact, the demography in a lot of these places. And they've come in and taken over jobs and land and, and uh, you know, all the other accoutrements that go with the uh, economic uh, well-being. So it's, it's uh, spread across the country, yes. Yeah, so as you say, I mean, Hindus in, in Assam are also unhappy with the legislation. Was that sort of unexpected, if you if you like? Very much so, actually. There's something else that's waiting in the wings, uh, which is something called the National Register of Citizens, which basically is uh, an extension of the citizen uh, bill, uh, under which uh, uh, you have to prove your citizenship. And you have to show documents to prove that you are a resident of this country. Now, a majority of this country over the age of about 50 do not have any birth certificates because they were either born at home or born in, in local clinics or, you know, through midwives. So that's the other thing that's uh, waiting to uh, explode over the next few months because the BJP government has said it's going to introduce 
this national register of citizens and that's terrifying millions and millions of indians in terms of that citizenship bill uh, why are our muslims particularly fearful of it all muslims feel uh, that they're being persecuted and although the bill does not uh, apply to muslims living inside the country but there are a lot of measures that the bjp government has instituted over the last uh, few months and particularly over the last 5 years there has been in par which are uh, perceived by muslims uh, to be um, and anti muslim and sectarian and uh, they fear that uh, and also mr modi's background uh, as a hindu leader uh, is uh, primarily anti islamic so there is a lot of consternation and worry amongst the uh, muslim community now the government has argued going back to the, the citizenship law that it's not biased and says it couldn't include muslims as they're not minorities in those three countries but opponents reject that don't they and part part of that is is to do with the fact that the indian constitution which which re- rejects discrimination on the basis of religion isn't that right yes there are in fact two articles in the constitution uh, which forbid uh, the use of religion for uh, for nationality and uh, this in direct contravention of that but the government seems to be very confident uh, of its uh, of its rightfulness and uh, has secured this uh, bill through parliament so there's nobody who can really argue about it anymore i know you're writing today about about the ramifications likely for india's uh, ties with with these with these neighbors such as uh, bangladesh and afghanistan who are denying persecuting their minority communities um what 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 are the ramifications there are what, what have they been saying Well, India has. Uh, I mean, Mr. Modi's one of Mr. Modi's planks was to uh, cement relations with neighbors and then go further afield. Now, this has uh, has muddied the waters as far as Bangladesh is concerned, because a lot of the people who have flooded into India over the last thirty or forty years have been from Bangladesh, uh, and if they are declared non-citizens, I mean, Bangladesh is not going to accept them because they run into billions. uh and there's no way that india can force them to go into uh bangladesh similarly afghanistan had very good ties with india but now over these uh, so called notions or allegations of persecution uh they are upset uh, in fact the afghan ambassador gave an interview to television uh, one of the television channels saying that uh, there's no way that uh, any of the sikh community who are in large numbers in afghanistan have been persecuted so that's also upsetting uh, a lot of the neighbors pakistan of course has very bad ties with india in any case um but one of the uh, unintended consequences in fact uh, is uh, the visit of the japanese prime minister shinzo abe he was supposed to go to assam uh, with mr modi to hold a bilateral summit now that's been cancelled which uh, is uh, which a lot of people are considering is a huge diplomatic setback to japan because india is looking for a lot of cost uh, and trade and economic ties with japan now presumably modi was anticipating some of this backlash at least um and 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 i guess he he probably didn't care to some degree um it is popular i, I assume this new bill i mean in 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 the, in the large part well uh, that's very difficult to say for the moment but because if you look at the protests uh, and the outbreak of violence across the country it doesn't really seem to be but the bigger question that a lot of analysts uh, and people in fact within government are saying is that it's a distraction from the downturn in india's economy because uh, mr modi's government has not really done very much for the economy which is in a sort of a very uh, uh, serious downward spiral 
so they're saying that it's a distraction from uh, his inaction on the economic front. And what's going to happen from here? Is there any chance of it of it uh, being overturned, or will there be a court challenge, or or what 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 uh, happens with the bill here? Uh, in fact, the court challenge is already underway. I mean, the opposition parties and some activists uh, uh, and human rights uh, people have filed a uh, case in court. Um, the chances of the bill being overturned are, are, are nil. I mean, there's zero chances of the bill being overturned. Uh, and it's, it's going to go through. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to Dennis Staunton and Rahul Bedi, and also to producer Declan Conlon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>